this pattern to show us the benefit that wisdom can bring, but the great harm that can befall the individual that holds the wisdom if they allow that wisdom to become polluted by the presence of a small amount of foolishness, of folly, or of sin. Now, after the author makes this initial point about the polluting effects of sin upon the wisdom that is present in our life, he then continues on, diving further into the nature of the relationship that exists between wisdom and foolishness. As we continue on in verses 2 and 3, a couple of the things that the author points out is that wisdom actually can guide us into a place of safety and protection. This is what he's talking about when he says that a wise man's heart inclines him to the right. This means that it guides him toward the way that things should be. Uh, Another way to look at this is it was an idiom that was used in Jewish culture is often the right hand was the one on which the shield was worn. So it inclines him toward the side of protection and safety in his life. Whereas as we see, he continues on that a fool's heart brings him to the left or exposes him to great danger as it takes him away from the way that he is instructed to walk according to God's commands. Additionally, we see that this foolishness not only exposes the owner of it to great danger, but it also exposes who that individual really is. That's what we see here in verse 3 where it talks about this fool walking along the road lacking sense. And the result of that act, the foolishness that is evident as that fool goes about its day-to-day life, is that everyone can see that they are a fool. And so we see here that wisdom is something that offers great power, can guide us into protection. But if we abandon it, what we are going to see is that the foolishness and the sin of our life much like it causes that ointment to become a stench, will guide us into great danger and expose the true foolishness of our hearts. Now what all of this ultimately points us to is the main idea that we see within our passage, which is that we are to pursue this wise living while recognizing wisdom's limited power. Now, after establishing kind of this main point and giving us this word picture to describe how the relationship between foolishness and wisdom actually work, the author then goes into some practical application of how we see this play out in our life. First starting with showing us how we can see wisdom play out in the relationships that we experience. The first point that we see the author make in verses 4 through 7 is that we are to pursue wisdom in our relationships But we also need to recognize that it does not guarantee the success that we seek. Now what we see in this uh, passage, verses 4 through 7, is that verse 4 starts off by alluding back to something that we find in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 15, verse 1, which tells us that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And here we see the author place it in the context of this interaction between a ruler and someone who that ruler has authority over or somebody who serves them. And what he shows us is that for the individual that is serving the ruler, that when the ruler becomes angry, if the person serving him responds in wisdom according to what the book of Proverbs tells them to do, that this calmness will lay aside great offenses and will lay them to rest. So once again, we see the author starting off by showing that there is great value and power in wisdom. There is power here to restore brokenness in the relationship. There is power here to bring peace to a relationship that was once uh, rooted in anger and strife. But as he continues on in verses 5 through 7, we see that 
This isn't always going to be a solution for the problems that we face in our relationships, nor is it going to guarantee the success that we often seek from them. Because if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of the relationships that we have in our life, we have in order to bring us something of value. Whether it's companionship, whether it is making us more successful in our job or our hobby. Many of the relationships we have, we have because they are in some way beneficial for us. And we seek some type of success in our life through those relationships. And what the author wants us to see is that by living with wisdom in these relationships, we should and can experience a small piece of the great power of that wisdom. But because of the brokenness of the world, the folly, the foolishness, and the sin of life here under the sun, the success that we seek is not always going to be guaranteed. That's what the author is saying in verses 5 through 7, where he shows us this error, which he says is actually preceding or caused by the ruler himself. So that very same ruler that we saw before that was angry that the individual with wisdom was able to bring peace to that relationship, it still doesn't solve the ultimate problem that that ruler often acts out in a way that is foolish. Here we see that often that ruler sets individuals who are full of foolishness and folly into many high places, while those who are rich and wise sit in a low place. He says that he's seen the rulers put slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now in our culture, we have a little bit of a hard time recognizing or understanding exactly what the author is saying here because we don't really have a culture of princes and kings and servants and slaves. But if you would just imagine for me that the presidential motorcade was driving through downtown Washington, D.C., and instead of the president sitting inside the armored vehicle being chauffeured to whatever important meeting he was going to, you saw the Secret Service agent sitting inside while the president ran alongside the vehicle. This to you would seem backwards. It would seem like an inversion of what is supposed to be going on. It would seem like foolishness. And that's ultimately what the author is showing us. He's showing us that while wisdom offers us great power in our relationships, it doesn't always guarantee that it's going to result in the end success that we're looking for. Because foolishness, folly, and sin still exist under the sun. They are still potentially going to pollute and taint the relationships that we have. And we're still going to have relationships with individuals that despite the fact that we seek to display wisdom in those relationships, they are not able or choose not to display the same wisdom. And because of that, we are not able to receive or experience the success that we seek to achieve through that relationship itself. Now, the author continues to go on once he establishes this point in verses 8 all the way down through verse 11, continuing on this theme but turning to a different topic. He turns to talk about that we are to pursue wisdom in our daily life while recognizing that it cannot guarantee safety. Here in verses 8 through 11, we see this collection of different tasks that may be undertaken on any given day for uh, the original reader of this passage or the original audience, doing things like digging a pit, which was often used to capture animals so that they could feed themselves and their family, breaking down or moving a wall so that they could establish different barriers or different uh, edges to determine like where your piece of land ended and someone else's began. We see them uh, chopping wood, splitting logs, quarrying stone, doing all of the things that are needed to survive in the day-to-day -day life of one of the Israelites that would be reading this text when it was originally written. 
And what we see uh, in verse 10 is that wisdom does help one succeed in these tasks. Now, in the ESV translation, the way that the uh, potential bad fate befalls the individual who is doing the task is explained in a way that is inevitable, right? It says that he who digs a pit will fall into it. The serpent will bite the one who breaks through the wall. And this pattern continues on. But many other translations look at what goes on in verse 10 where it talks about the advantage that wisdom actually gives. And it translates that word might in a different way. And it translates it as it may. So instead of that he who digs a pit will fall into it, it could be translated as he who digs a pit may fall into it. A serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them. And so what we see here is what we experience in our own day-to-day lives. And that is that the world that we experience is fraught with dangers. Whether it was in the life of an ancient Hebrew here, the dangers that they had around them as they sought to provide for their family, whether it was falling into a pit or being bitten by a venomous snake, or it's the danger that all of us face every single day as we try to drive in 95 traffic on our way into Washington, D.C., we know that we experience great danger in all of our lives. And what the author goes out of his way to point out to us in verse 10 is that wisdom does help us to succeed in these tasks. It helps us to avoid danger. If we are able to apply wisdom into digging a pit, we may cover it up or find a way to ensure that we don't fall into it while we are digging. As we are breaking down a wall, we get this picture of these porous walls that are just essentially rocks stacked on top of each other with these crevices that a snake could be hiding in. And the author is essentially telling us, hey, if you apply a little bit of wisdom, if you're a little bit extra careful as you're breaking down that wall, you can probably identify whether or not there's a snake in that wall that's going to bite you before it is too late. So once again, we see here the author making the claim that there is power to be gained in wisdom. That if we apply wisdom to these situations, you may fall into the pit, but you also may not if you're able to uh, apply the appropriate level of wisdom and secure its power. But once again, as we see in verse 11, this power is limited. Because the author goes on in verse 11 to say that if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. And so here, what we see the author telling us is that there is great power to be gained in wisdom. But sometimes there are circumstances that are outside of your control. And that wisdom is not going to be able to guarantee the safety that we all seek through it. Sometimes, despite your best efforts, despite your application of wisdom, despite you trying to prepare the best you can and ensure that your talent is prepared to be able to charm that snake before it bites, sometimes the snake just isn't going to be charmed and the snake is going to bite before you have a chance to apply that wisdom. And the safety that you have sought to achieve through your wisdom, you're never going to experience. Now from there, the author once again then continues on into another area of our life. He tells us that we should pursue wisdom in our speech while recognizing that it is not going to guarantee for us prosperity. We see this picking up in verse 12 where the author starts off by creating this comparison between the words of the wise and the words of a fool. He says that the words of the wise win him favor. Or another way you may see this translated, it says that they are full of graciousness. With this, we have this idea of building up. 
Something being created, this positive gain being generated through the words that flow forth from a wise man's mouth. This is then contrasted to what happens when a fool speaks, which the author says the lips of the fool consume him. So instead of building up, being of benefit to himself and others, the words of the fools actually destroy and consume the one who speaks them. He then continues on to tell us more about what the words of a fool are like. He says that they actually turn out to be an evil madness. That they are going to be many, but they are going to be of little value because the fool cannot possibly know what will be after him. The fool may say a lot, but ultimately he speaks out of ignorance. And then he concludes this thought by giving us this little idiom at the end, this idea of the toil of a fool or the speaking of a fool wearying him because he does not know the way to the city. Ultimately, this is the Hebrew version of saying that when somebody throws and is unable to hit a target, that they couldn't hit the broad side of a barn, right? He's saying that like, if you've ever been to Israel or the Middle East, it's generally pretty flat and you can see for a long way. And so what he is saying is that even out here in the middle of this desert, the fool is so foolish that though he should be able to see the city, he can't seem to find a way to navigate his way there. And so because of his foolishness, because we cannot trust him, because his words are many but of little value, the words of his mouth, his toil, actually weary him because of his foolishness. And then he continues on. He goes on to then give us this word picture which really sets the stage for the limits of wisdom that he wants to show us. You see here in verses 12 through 15, the author is trying to show us the power that speech can have. He is saying that if our speech is sprinkled and flavored with wisdom, then it is going to have the power to build up, to win favor. There are, our words are going to be full of graciousness to those who are around us. But if they are not, they are going to bring destruction. So we see here the power that wisdom has in our speech. But the author wants to continue on to show us that even through wise speech, though, we cannot guarantee our prosperity. And the way he does this is by giving this kind of scene of two different situations that we might find ourselves in. And as we go into an election year, it's, I think, especially appropriate for us to take what the author has to say here to heart. Because what he says to us is that we might find ourselves in one of two situations. We might find ourselves in what we find in verse 16, which is serving a ruler that you might view as being foolish. He describes that individual as a child or one who feasts in the morning, which once again may not make sense to us. But if we think back to maybe your Christmas morning when you woke up early, partook in a large breakfast, then you know that for the rest of the day, you probably weren't going to be of much use to your family. You simply wanted to lay around and nurse the food coma that you had stupored yourself into through taking on all of the food and beverages that you had enjoyed on that morning. This may be very similar to what some of you are going to experience tomorrow as you stay up late, well past midnight tonight, enjoying food and drink with your family, celebrating the years that is to come, and then waking up tomorrow morning at the bright hour of noon, recognizing that the entire day is gone and that you've not brought prosperity to the land that you've been put in charge of ruling. Well, in the same way, the author is saying that you may find yourself in a situation where you have that kind of ruler. 
But some of you may at times find yourself in a land where your ruler is the son of nobility. They come from a long line of rulers. They come from a long line of wise individuals who have brought prosperity to a land. They have the wisdom to know when to feast at the proper time. And to know that food isn't only for celebrating, but that it also can bring great strength. We see the author continue on in verses 18 through 19, expanding upon the mindset that we see in verse 16, which is that this foolish ruler, through their sloth, causes the roof for the household to sink in. It brings about decay. This unwise ruler may view that bread is only good for laughter and wine is only good for gladdening life and that money is the answer to everything. Meanwhile, as we saw before, the wise ruler knows that food and drink, while they can bring happiness and allow us to enjoy life, are also meant for strength. And that hard work and wisdom are needed in addition to money in order to allow us to have answers for everything within this life. And so then once the author kind of paints this picture of two situations that we might find ourselves in, what he shows us is that even if we have speech that is characterized by wisdom, we still may find ourselves not experiencing the prosperity that we seek. We see this as he shows that even in our thoughts, we are to not curse the king nor in our bedroom or a private place where nobody should be able to hear what is going on are we to curse the rich. Why? Because a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. Now, I don't know for sure if this is where this phrase come from, but some of you have maybe heard the phrase of like a little birdie told me, right? Or we have formerly the artist now known as X used to be Twitter, right? And we had the little bird icon that would go about telling people our 160 character thoughts on the internet. Well, we have the same thing here where the author is saying that even if your speech is characterized by wisdom, your thoughts themselves will betray you and could lead to the king finding out that you despise them, which is not going to lead to the prosperity that you seek. So while wisdom does have power as it builds up and brings graciousness to our speech, there is a limit to the wisdom's power because of the sin and the foolishness that lies in all of our own thoughts and minds, which ultimately betray us and take away the prosperity that we desire. So should we pursue wisdom in our speech, you may ask? Absolutely. In all of the different examples that the author has given us, he doesn't want us to miss the fact that wisdom does have good things to offer us, that there is power to be sought in wisdom to bring about some of the things that we seek in this life. But we are not to rely on it to guarantee any of those things which we seek. Because even in the wisdom of our speech, as we saw the wisdom or the sinfulness of our thoughts are going to limit wisdom's power, even as we seek safety, the brokenness of the world is going to take away wisdom's guarantee of that safety. And even as we seek success through our relationships, the foolishness and sinfulness in our own lives or the lives of others are not going to be able, are going to take away wisdom's ability to guarantee the success that we seek. So with this happy idea in mind, the passage ends. That's the end of the chapter, right? And it's really here that we get to the end of the chapter where I think we see the climax or the peak of the tension that the author is creating for us. 
because it's here where we get to the end of the chapter where the author kind of leaves us dangling, asking the question of what do we do with this that we don't actually find a true resolution. And this can create in us this sense of angst as we are left to question how then are we supposed to live? How do we live in light of wisdom's limited power? And it's here in this question that we need to think all the way back to the analogy about the garden and the way that the book of Ecclesiastes operates at the beginning of the sermon in order to understand what the author is actually doing here. Now, remember, the book of Ecclesiastes is all about tearing out the weeds in our life that we think are going to guarantee us this substantive gain that we desire, but that are ultimately going to prove to be a vapor that are going to leave us disappointed and wanting for more. The book is supposed to clear out all of the false hopes that we have in our life that promise to bring the fruit of gain, but ultimately will fail to bring it forth. And then... Once all of those weeds are pulled out and the way is cleared, then we are to look forward in Scripture for the planting of the seeds of truth, which the book of Ecclesiastes is intended to make room for. And then we plant those seeds and we allow them to take root in our life and bring forth that life and that fruit that we all seek. So as we sit here asking this question of how do we live in light of wisdom's limited power, I think there are five different ways that we can respond to this. The first is that in light of wisdom's limited power, we still pursue wisdom. We see that there is power in wisdom. Going all the way back to the story that the author started off with in chapter 9 of this wise, poor man who had great wisdom. And though even nobody wanted to, even though no one wanted to listen to what he had to say, His wisdom was still powerful. As we look forward in Scripture, we can see that very similar to this poor, wise man, we find Jesus, full of powerful wisdom, yet despised and ignored. Nobody, including many of us, wanted to listen to what he had to say. They didn't think his words were of consequence, that they had any value on their own. And even though he was often despised and ignored, even to the point of being unjustly crucified on our behalf, we know that there, are still, there is still power in the wisdom of the words that he offers to us. And so we should reflect upon that and understand that even though wisdom can't guarantee some of the things that we might seek in this life, there is still inherent value and power to the wisdom that we find in the words of Christ and here in this passage in Scripture. And that we should still seek after those things because they will guide us down the path of safety and point us in the right direction, even though in life here under the sun, they may not be able to guarantee some of those things that it is that we seek. Now, secondly, in light of wisdom's limited power, we are to guard against sin and foolishness and seek its removal from our life. Going all the way back to the word picture that the author started off with, which is a few dead flies taking this beautiful perfume and turning it into this thing that stunk of death, we are to look at our lives and recognize that if we allow...
removing them from our life through the moving of his spirit in the word, that what we are going to find as we continue in our life is that those things that we thought were small and inconsequential actually have the power to destroy all of the beauty that wisdom desires to create. So as we understand that wisdom's power is limited by our sin and foolishness, we should seek to eliminate sin and foolishness from our life to the greatest degree that we are able. Thirdly, in light of wisdom's inability to guarantee success through relationships, as we go into this next year, we should respond by pursuing a relationship that guarantees an eternal inheritance. As we look at the seed of truth that we find in Hebrews 9, chapter 15, which states, Therefore, he, being Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Here we see that through a relationship, we do have a guarantee. It is not a guarantee of success in life here under the sun, but it is the guarantee of an eternal inheritance that has been bought and purchased for us and is able to be accessed only through a relationship with Christ and a faith in his work as demonstrated on the cross on our behalf. And so as we go into this new year and we look at the limited power of wisdom, we need to recognize that wisdom's power to give us what we seek here under the sun is limited, but the power of Christ as displayed in wisdom on the cross to give us an eternal inheritance is unlimited. And this can be especially important for us as we think about cutting out these areas of foolishness and sin in our life. Because, as I heard another pastor say once, that which we do not receive vertically, we are going to shop for horizontally. And so as we look at our lives and we look at the relationships that we are seeking to provide us the gain that it is that we desire in this life to give us the success or the meaning that we yearn for, if we are not rooted in the only relationship that can provide the guarantee of an eternal inheritance, then we are going to find ourselves investing in relationships that are never going to be able to offer us that which we eternally seek. And what we are likely going to find is that it is going to lead us down paths that bring foolishness and sin and folly into our life. Once again, not bringing about the aroma of life, but the stench of death. Fourth, in light of wisdom's inability to guarantee our safety, we should pursue a life that does not end. We see this seed of truth found in John 5, verse 22, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So as we reconcile the fact that while wisdom does have power, it cannot guarantee our safety or the safety of those that we love as we walk through this next year of life, then we have a choice to make on whether or not we are going to try to cling to the power of wisdom to give us that which it was never intended to be able to provide, or are we instead going to turn and seek eternal life outside of the confines of life here under the sun? Are we going to seek the only life that is truly eternal, the only life that is actually guaranteed to last forever, and that is the life that is found through the relationship that we have with Christ? And then finally, in light of wisdom's inability to guarantee happiness, we should pursue the king who offers a perfect kingdom 
despite our rejection. You see, the beauty of what the author has to show us in the illustration that he uses is that the author shows us the limited power of wisdom in our speech by showing that even in our thoughts, we are going to curse the king. We are going to curse the one who rules over that with the implication being that we are going to suffer because of that. But the truth that the gospel tells us is that in our thoughts and in our lives and in our hearts, we have already rejected the king. We have already sought after our own ways. We have already sinned. We have already sought to have dominion over our own life. And we have rejected in our own ways the gift and the love that Christ offers to us. And yet in the middle of that rejection, God sent his son down displaying the power of his wisdom on the cross so that we could have a relationship with him. And so as we recognize the limits of the power of our own wisdom, we need to recognize the unlimited power of the wisdom of God displayed in the person of Jesus on the cross. And the fact that he, as he placed on his crown and began his dominion as king over all of the earth, as Colby so eloquently described to us on Christmas Eve, that we see that within that wisdom, we have the ability to experience the eternal prosperity that we seek. That we have access to a ruler, to a king who is good, who offers a perfect kingdom, even in spite of our rejection of him. And that if we simply submit to his rule, turn to him, place our faith in Jesus and his redeeming work on the cross, that we, despite the limits of the power of our own wisdom, can be partakers in the unlimited benefits and power of the wisdom of Christ. So as we close our time together and we prepare to transition to our time of communion where we are going to partake of the bread and the cup, I encourage you to take this time to think about the fact that just as the author talked about in verse 17 where he talked about rejoicing but because we have a king that understands that food and drink are for strength, that we serve a king that has an understanding of the power of food and drink. That as we come here, we see the true power that the bread and the wine have as it is displayed in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And that we serve a king who understood that power and offers it to us freely so that we can be reconciled to him and experience the power of his wisdom. And then I encourage you to join together to remember this wisdom as it was displayed on the cross as a guarantee for our redemption. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your wisdom as we see it displayed through the person of Christ as he was broken for us on the cross. And I pray that as we go into this next year, Lord, that that is what our eyes would be fixed upon. That as our hearts are so tempted to turn away from walking in your statutes and seeking um, after you and turning to our own wisdom, Lord, that the reminder that we have here about your broken body and shed blood would be a reminder to us of your wisdom as it was displayed on our behalf, Lord, and that the things that we seek would be not those things here under the sun, Lord, but that which lies beyond the sun to which we are given access through your son, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of your son. Amen.